tidy. All this said because uh, I didn't prepare. No, I didn't. I didn't. So here we go. Do you know what book of the Bible we're in? Yeah, we're in Luke. In Luke chapter 5 today, just the first uh, 11 verses, it's, a, uh, it's like a paragraph. I'll tell you what Luke chapter 5 is about as you turn there. Um, do you know, you, you need a reason to believe that Jesus is who he said he is. Because simply to make the claims he made is one thing, but they have to be substantiated. And Luke, the gospel writer in this chapter, is going to show us substantiation, an evidentiary basis for believing that Jesus is exactly who he claimed to be. He's no pretender to the throne. So what you will see in Luke first is the Lord's mastery over the natural order. Second, the Lord's mastery over disease. And thirdly, perhaps most importantly, the Lord's authority over sin. And so that's the order in which you'll see things. And for today, we'll take a look at the Lord's mastery over the natural order of things. We don't have mastery uh, over it. Uh, today's climate uh, is a stark reminder of it. We're setting all kinds of records. This next week, again, will be uh, temperatures in excess of 100, the most severe drought in history of Texas, uh, tornadoes, all kinds of things, earthquakes all over the place. We're subject to the throes of nature, but not the Lord Jesus. That's one of the reasons why, if you're yielding to him, you have good reason to. He's Lord over that which otherwise uh, um, uh, masters us. He has mastery over the natural order. We'll take a look. So here we are, Luke 5, verse 1. Now it happened that while the crowd was pressing around him and listening to the word of God, he was a sought-after teacher. And whenever people heard he was going to be in the area to teach, uh, they flocked to him. Why? Did you ever think about what was so stimulating, so attractive? Why did why did they come from all over, no matter where he? What was it about his teaching? You have any idea? Any thoughts? Well, that is one thing. Someone here said, "Thank you." It was true. One thing, and people sort of knew that. It wasn't opinion. It wasn't a philosophy. It was, it was it was hardcore truth. That's a good observation. Yes, sir. He taught with authority. And you might say, well, yeah, but wait a second. The other teachers, they were rabbis. In fact, they, they referred to Jesus as a rabbi, a traveling rabbi, a teacher. They all taught with authority, but not their own. So uh, the art of rabbinical teaching down to this very day is that you refer to the teaching of prior rabbis. In fact, those rabbis who are older and gone are thought to have more authority than modern-day rabbis. So as you go back to the highest rabbi, Moses, he had the highest authority 
its thought in Judaism because God gave him the Ten Commandments. And every rabbi since then is ranked according to their proximity to Moses. And so today, as in the Lord's Day, rabbis, when they taught, would say, Rabbi so-and-so said, and Rabbi so-and-so said. But when Rabbi Jesus taught, He invoked the authority of none other but himself. He said, I say. He taught with inherent authority that no other rabbi possessed. So they came, whether he was in synagogue or seashore, the crowd came and pressed around him to listen Look at the phrase, to the word of God. That's the first time the phrase is used in Luke's gospel. We made it all the way to chapter 5. This is the first reference to the Bible, the word of God. It's called the word of God because it is the word about God. But more importantly, it is the word, not only about God, it is the word From God. This is a very important distinction. Many write books about God. Some are good. Some not so good. But only the Bible is the word from God. You see? So so this is a very important distinction. We know the last book of the Bible is called the book of... But all 66 books are books of revelation... Uh, from on high. It's quite a gift is the Bible. So people came to listen uh, to the Lord Jesus impart truth from the word of God. And it says he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. Does your Bible say that? Does your Bible, do you have a, or do you know of another name for the lake of Gennesaret? It's the Sea of Galilee. So make no mistake about it, the Sea of Galilee is referred to in various ways. Sometimes the Sea of Tiberias, because it's named after a Roman emperor, city cropped up on the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee called Tiberias. It exists today. You can go to it. Sometimes it's called the um, Sea or Lake of Kinneret, Kinneret, from which we get the word Gennesaret, Sea of Kinneret, it's a Hebrew word meaning harp. Because if you get up above the Sea of Galilee, and you can on the western side, you can go up on the heights, Golan Heights, you, you, which is you, you know about, it's in the news all the time. Anyway, you're going to look down on the Sea of Galilee, and you'll see it's wider in the northern part, and it narrows down when you get to the southern part. It looks like the shape of a harp. Hence the name Kinneret for harp. It's about 13 miles long. It's about seven, seven and a half miles wide. It's fairly deep. It is not actually a sea, yet it is referred to as the Sea of Galilee. It's actually a lake, not salt water, fresh water, called a sea because the weather conditions on it could be like uh, on the sea. Though the topography of the land traps wind and a big storm can take place uh, without any notice. We read about these things in the gospel. So it's called the Sea of Galilee. Uh, in the Lord's day, it was a 
populated area. There were uh, fairly significant cities all around it. For instance, if you're on the Sea of Galilee, uh, to the north, on the northern shore, are places uh, like Capernaum and Bethsaida and uh, Chorazin. Have you heard of them? If you go there today, do you know what you will see where those cities were? Ruins of them, because the Lord pronounced a curse on all three of those cities. When you go and you see the ruins, you're reminded, wow, what he says, he will do. So you have these cities, and then if you're on the Sea of Galilee, and you look, uh, and you're on the the, uh, the uh, western shore, you'll see a place called Magdala, and that's where Mary Magdalene is from, Mary of Magdala. That's where she, if you look over here on the east, you'll see a hill. And on that hill, the Lord sent pigs. Remember, he sent the, excuse me, sent demons into pigs and they rushed down. You say, what are pigs doing in Israel? Well, well, on that side of the Sea of Galilee, uh, Gentiles lived. Those were the cities are called of the Decapolis, 10 primarily Gentile cities. All this stuff is true. I didn't make up one thing. I just told you. These are real places. You can see them today. In or around the Sea of Galilee, the Lord performed about 18 of his 35 or 36 recorded miracles in the New Testament. So it's quite a significant place. There he is. That's where he started his public ministry in the northern part of Israel. That's Galilee. It's beautiful. It's peaceful. It's lush, green, rolling hills. Oh, my goodness. Quite a stark contrast to where he went next. He was led south into the Judean desert there to be tempted by the evil one. And then he finished crucified in Jerusalem. But anyway, this is where he started. And so he's teaching there uh, at the Sea of Galilee. And verse 2, oh, by the way, there's lots of fish in it. (laughs) Even today, in the Lord's day, many fish, many varieties of fish. As a result, many fishermen plied their trade there. Often on the Sea of Galilee, there would have been many, many Fishing boats, if you can get the picture of it all in your mind. Well, verse 2, he saw two boats lying on the edge of the lake, but the fishermen had gotten out of them and were washing their nets. So here's what happened. Experienced, knowledgeable fishermen knew the best time to fish the Sea of Galilee was when? At night. So they fished at night, but they weren't off duty by day. They had to care for, mend and wash their nets. If they did not, they they would deteriorate. They would dry, they would harden, they would decay and fall apart. So a few are with their boats, not in them. They're washing their nets. The Lord sees it. And verse 3, he got into one of the boats which was Simon's. What's another name for Simon? That's Peter. Peter, crusty old Peter, was a fisherman. So the Lord got into Peter's boat and asked him to put out a little away from the land. And he sat down and began teaching the people from 
the boat. You say, well, that's an unusual. Why did he, why do you think he, why, why is he teaching from the boat? What's, just logistically, what's going on? Do you have any idea? Sir? Oh, this is good. It amplified the sound. It travels on water. In our last uh, class, a man asked a wonderful question. How could he be heard? You know about the feeding of the 5,000 and all that stuff around there? It's a natural amphitheater effect. No need for microphones. The teacher would be low, downhill. All the people would be up here seated on the hillside, you can speak up. And even without raising your voice, you could be heard by thousands. We've tried it out. Little wimpy guy like me could be heard over there in the natural amphitheater of the Sea of Galilee. And as you so well said, particularly by the water, uh, the, the, the water would conduct the sound. And then, of course, he, remember, he was getting pressed by the crowd. So just from, again, another logistical point of view, he made his way in the boat so as to give himself a little space from the crowd. And notice it says he sat down to teach. Wouldn't you think, as is our fashion, he might, he might stand as I am now? No, the rabbis of the day sat. Oftentimes the students actually stood, or they sat, as I mentioned, on a hillside, but the Lord sat. You can see this when he taught in the synagogue at Capernaum. He sat down to teach. By the way, if you went to Capernaum today, you could walk in a synagogue, which is not the one in which the Lord taught. It is one on the foundation, the very foundation of the one in which the Lord taught. So he sat down as it says, to teach, which was in keeping with rabbinical fashion. In verse 4, when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. So I want to ask you, what? how do you think this impacted on Simon, on Peter? What is he thinking at this time? Well said. What, he's a carpenter, not a fisherman. You are right. He's from Nazareth, a rather insignificant town in Galilee, and it was maybe 130 people, quite rural, agricultural. They didn't fish. What does this guy know about fishing? Well said. He obviously doesn't know much because seasoned fishermen, real fishermen knew the best time to fish the Sea of Galilee was at night and the best place was in shallow water. Now this Yeshua, this Jesus from Nazareth, is wanting them to fish in deep water by day. Absolutely contrary to everything a skillful, experienced fisherman New. And so Simon answered and said, what does your Bible say? Master. Interesting. Do you know the Lord is referred to by master, as master, in Luke's gospel, not in Matthew's or Mark's so much? Matthew and Mark refer to the Lord as teacher or rabbi. Luke refers to him as master. Why? Just a little sidelight. You have any idea why? Well, he, yeah, Peter, uh, exactly, re- recording the words uh, of of Peter. Yes, 
Good. That's a good distinction. Why does Luke record uh, the Lord being referred to as master rather than as teacher or rabbi? Yes, ma'am. This is kind of a good point. Remember, Luke's audience is primarily made up of Gentile people. So to refer to Jesus as rabbi would not have communicated as much to them as master, which was a term Gentile folks would have been much more familiar with. So that's kind of gives us an indication that Luke's audience was different than the audience of Matthew or Mark. And it means in Greek, which is the language Luke here used, it means one placed above or over. Not so tricky. Same notion of master we have. One, he's not just a fantastic teacher. He's master placed over the rest of us who are required to submit to him. So uh, Peter says, Master, we worked hard all night and caught nothing. So this was like a bad fishing night for sure. And this was their livelihood, but it didn't work. Uh, and yet Peter says, but I will do as you say and let down the nets. I find this remarkable. Peter is not a pushover, is he? He's not easily sold a bill of goods. In fact, it's fascinating to me at this point that a crusty, experienced, strong-willed fisherman, contrary to reason, would have yielded to the Lord's directive. And I'll tell you why he did it. There's a lot of reasons. But when you put the Gospels together, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you find out this was not Peter's first encounter with the Lord Jesus. This gives the impression that out of the blue, he just submitted to the Lord. That's not true. There's a series of events. There's been a process of relationship development, during which time Peter and others have gotten to hear and see, hear the words of this Jesus and see the works of this Jesus, leading him up to the point where he is willing to yield. By the way, this is sort of a good uh, theme by which we should live. Um, there are times when the Lord's commandments and requirements, let's just face it, uh, don't have an appeal to our reason. They don't make sense. Sometimes we think we have a better way. I think it's best at those times to have the uh, perspective Peter did. Lord, this I can't comprehend this fully. This doesn't make too much sense to me, but I will do as you say. Remember, he's master. He's the one who is above. Anyway, Peter yields to the Lord at this point. And verse 6, when they had done this, when they went out to deep water and put out the nets, they enclosed a great quantity of fish and their nets began to break. Folks, this is not a good fishing day. This is an extraordinary, even miraculous supply of fish. Deep water, by day, so many that the nets uh, begin to break. You know what's happening? 
Luke is demonstrating for us the divinity of Jesus. He at least was omniscient. He knew where the fish could be found. He was more than just a good fisherman. Peter was a good fisherman, but Peter was not omniscient. And also, he was omnipotent. He surely had the power, probably, to call upon fish uh, under his mastery to appear where they otherwise would not be likely to appear. And so everyone is beginning to see, wow, this is not just a declarer of things. This is a demonstrator of things. Therefore, what he demonstrates is a backdrop for what he declares. We ought to believe what he said on the basis of what he did. So the miracles in the Bible, a little bit of a sidelight, and I gotta be careful because I get real upset about, about this. I gotta calm down because I'm getting old. You don't wanna, you know, you got the blood pressure. You gotta stay calm. I'm working on the calm thing. Uh, today you hear a lot of talk about miracles, 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 miracles. Be careful. Do you know a miracle is a suspension of a natural law? Like the law of gravity. If a person went to a high place, jumped off, and um, survived, uh, or floated even, that would be called a miracle because the natural law of gravity has been suspended. If someone uh, is risen from death, that's a miracle because it's a suspension of the natural law, the finality of Death. If someone grows an appendage which is not there, that would be a miracle because it's a suspension of a law of physiology. So be careful because I do not think miracles are as commonplace as people make them out to be. And I'll tell you what I mean by that. If a miracle is as commonplace as people make them out to be, it ceases to be a miracle. It's just normal everyday behavior. So, so let me tell you something. I'll tell you what's normal everyday behavior. God intervening and providing for you as a blessing. But, but that doesn't require the miraculous. For instance, it's Christmas time and you go to Baybrook Mall. And you say, oh God, it's raining. My knee hurts. Could you please provide for me a really good parking spot? And boom, you get one. That is not a miracle. There's been no natural law that has been put on hold. It's just as good, though. You know what it is? A loving father providing for you a spot because you're a close up because you're lazy. I mean, because you're because it's <laughs> no. So don't misunderstand. I'm not I'm I'm not detracting from the goodness of God. I'm just saying uh, he intervenes and provides for us every day, but not necessarily miraculous. So now I'm going to make this other statement fairly dogmatic, and I'm open to correction. Uh, Maybe. So so here's the deal. Uh, You cannot show me one miracle in the Bible that's freestanding. Every miracle in the Bible, Old or New Testament, is always meant as a backdrop for the Word of God, either communicated by a prophet or an apostle or the Lord himself. Look, talk is cheap. We know the expression. To authenticate it, 
the speaker must be endued with power from on high. Remember when there was that paralytic, people took a part of roof, you know, to bring them to Jesus, and he said, which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or rise up and walk, but that you might know the Son of Man has power to forgive sin. I'm going to heal him physically. The, the physical healing miracle was not freestanding. It was to demonstrate that the Lord's declaration to forgive sin was substantiated. He had the authority and power to do so. So when you have these churches today, come get your miracle. God just, you know, God's not a showman. He just doesn't do stuff to jump through your hoops and mine. Oh, he bless us graciously, whether it be with a parking spot or who knows what. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. But the miraculous in the Bible is, oh, here's the point. The works of God substantiate the words of God. Otherwise, the miraculous has no purpose. So today, come get your miracle. Come get your miracle. You know, I want to tell you something. If people are being raised from the dead and you got all this healing of organic illness and stuff like the way I don't say God doesn't do that. I'm just saying if it's happening with as much frequency as people claim, it would be written up in the Journal of the American Medical Association. You'd be on Oprah Winfrey. You'd be on whatever. You'd be, come on, guys. Come on. You will find in the Bible, I dare you to prove me wrong, you will find there are even phases of the occurrence of miracles where sometimes the frequency of miracle is actually rather infrequent. You see this during the time of prophets and apostles. Whenever God is initiating a new thing, a new body of truth, it's corroborated by the miraculous. Okay, the only reason I say I say this is because I'm afraid a lot of us are just being duped into, you know, these people, miracle working. Come on. There's some people say, oh, Stuart, you don't have any faith. You're doubting. No, 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 no. God doesn't do anything contrary to the scriptures. I'm just saying be a student of scriptures and you'll see about miracles. Well, anyway, this is quite a miracle. So verse 7, when all this happens, they signaled their partners uh, to the other boat to come and help. See, the net in one boat boat wasn't enough, too many fish. So Peter is asking for help. And they came and they filled both of the boats and they began to sink. Folks, that's a lot of fish. That is not a good fishing day. That's a miraculous supply of fish. But when Simon Peter saw that, look, he fell down to Jesus' feet. I got to tell you something. Critics of the Bible say this could not be true. Why? Because they say the fishing boats of the day were not big enough for Peter to fall down in it at the feet of anyone. So not too many years ago, a discovery was meant uh, in the shore of the Sea of Galilee in the mud to amateur archaeologists. They're actually brothers, farmers, fishermen, Israelis, found a fishing boat the Israeli Department of Antiquities and other international experts were called in. It dates from the time of this account, 2,000 years ago, 2,000 years old. Scientists from all over came to try to figure out how are we going to extricate 
it from the mud in which it had been embedded and therefore protected, preserved for 2,000 years without it falling apart. Anyway, uh, in a painstaking way, they were able to liberate it from the hold of the mud. And you can visit it now. It's in a building right alongside the Sea of uh, Galilee. Rachel, we just saw it. When did we go? In, in January is when we went. It's there. So I'm not lying, am I? I need you to verify my words, Rachel. And you were there, brother? Thank you, brother. Good, thank you. The testimony of a man carries much more weight. <laughs> I mean, when Rachel, you didn't jump in there. Okay. Okay. So, I mean, it is there. But here's the deal. It's about 26. And, and Anita, there's Anita. Anita, we saw it. Uh, I'm telling the truth. Anita wouldn't lie. Look at it. This Anita. So anyway, it's about 26 and a half feet long. And it's about seven and a half feet wide. Here's my point. You can fit uh, about 10 people in it. There could be a ship captain. Uh, the Lord Jesus had time to, had room to stretch out and sleep. Remember when he slept? It can hold like a ton of fish. In fact, it's called the Jesus boat. Not that that's the one he was in. I hope nobody would have, would dare make that claim. But it was like one in which he was in, dating from the time. Anyway, Peter's response is very appropriate. Folks, when you're confronted by the divine, you don't say, wow, so you're my co-pilot. So you're the big guy who is ups." You fall at your feet. <sighs> well, you're, and you do what Peter, you know what? He says, go away from me, Lord. That's an idiom. He doesn't mean it literally. He means, how could it be that you, Holy One, would allow me, an intensely unholy one, to be in your presence? The closer you get to the light, the more enhanced is your awareness of the darkness in you. Let's just face it. At this point, Peter's intensely uncomfortable with the partnership. But the Lord Jesus will show him as we now know, looking back on it, he doesn't want us to be uncomfortable, though he be categorically different than us, holy. And we have this sin nature just like Peter's. He's the mediator. He's the bri- not the wall builder, the bridge builder. He's the one who said, come to me, all who are... He didn't say keep your... He said, come to me. Don't you see how... See, Peter didn't commit a specific sin at this point. It was worse than that. It was, it was his nature. His nature, when juxtaposed with the demonstrated nature of this divine one in the boat, showed him by contrast, I can't even stand in his presence. And so he falls. By the way, if the boat is filled with fish, what do you think? Peter has his nose into right now. I mean all dignity and religious formality and liturgy was laid aside and this I just fell down at the Lord's feet. Uh, Fish, stinky fish, notwithstanding. There's something that happens to religious people and Peter was. He was an Orthodox Jew. There's something that happens to religious people when you come to grips with who the Lord Jesus is. You don't jump through religious hoops anymore. You don't care about vestments. You don't care about incense. You don't care about... You care about, oh my, I'm in the presence of the Holy One. 
things are different. So that's what happened to this guy over o- o- over here. And then uh, it goes on in verse 9. For amazement had seized him and all his companions because of the catch of fish which they had taken. And so also were James and John. You know about them, right? They're more of the guys who are going to become disciples. Don't you think it's interesting that most of the Lord's disciples were fishermen? That's fascinating. There's something about fishermen if you think about it. They're not very philosophical. (laughs) Frankly, they may not be very deep. Generally, they're not very reflective people. Uh, They're better. They're practical. They're down to earth. They have the quality of patience. There's no such thing as a good fisherman who isn't patient. I mean, you go out one day, and if you don't get the catch you want, you give up fishing. I mean, you want to give up fishing. And they observe things like weather and rain, and they, they can sense and they can read the signals of the day. Isn't it interesting that the Lord chose fishermen to be his number one followers? Anyway, James and John, sons of Deb- Zebedee, who were partners with Simon, and Jesus said to Simon, do not fear. In the Greek tense, that is worded to indicate he already started to be afraid. So this commandment is in this order. Stop what you're already doing. He already started to fear. So the Lord is saying, stop doing it. By the way, the most oft-repeated commandment in the Bible is this one. Do not fear. Because as tough, as crusty as Peter was, and maybe as you and I think we are, in the presence of the Almighty, we're filled with trepidation and fear. And he is always saying, stop, 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 stop. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. I've come near. You can come near to me. I've made the way. I'm the mediator for you. So do not fear. You, you're going to be catching men. It's not about fish, is it? The miraculous catch was a backdrop for the word of God. And the word of God is, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Do you think uh, these down-to-earth logical fishermen who are just not going to be able to be sold a bill of goods... Are, are, are going to heed that invitation unless it was backed up? Follow me. Leave everything behind. I'll make you fishers of men. Don't you see? The works of God were the backdrop for the words of God. And did it work? Sure. When they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Now, folks, I'm not Peter, James, and John. Neither are you. I'm not an apostle, and neither are you. But the same call is given to all those who know the Lord Jesus. Follow me. Follow me. We don't all follow in the same way. That's not required. In accordance with whom you are fashioned by God, what does he have for you to do for his sake, for his glory? Everyone is enlisted. Everyone is a believer priest. 
Everyone is called to proclaim his excellencies. Not all in the same way. Don't misunderstand. Don't compare yourself to another. I can't compare myself to Peter or James or John. None of us can. Don't worry about that. That's not the point. Is there a reason, if there is a reason, for belief in Jesus, then there is a reason for being a sold-out disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not just a convert. (laughs) That's great. But if you're authentically a convert, don't you see the same call is given to you and to me? Uh, Be sold out. Follow me. Follow me. Follow me. On what basis? My words are authenticated by my works. What he did on the Sea of Galilee, just one, demonstrated the quality of omniscience and omnipotence, which are two of the attributes possessed only by God. Therefore, the works of God authenticate the words of God. And he is inviting us to follow him. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus, you will not be disappointed. (laughs) You will find out that your confidence in him was well placed. You will find out that though there are a number of pretenders to the throne, whether it be Mohammed or Allah or whatever, nobody could do even one such miraculous work on the Sea of Galilee. And the Bible tells us, good night, if all that he did were to be written, all the books in the world could not house it, could not contain all the truth. Allah cannot demonstrate the authenticity of the Quran. There are no works like this to authenticate it. Your faith in the... How could one billion Muslims be wrong? That is not for me to decide. I just want to know I'm right. How do I know I'm right? The works of Jesus authenticate the words of Jesus. By the way, one of the most significant works of Jesus is called the resurrection from the dead. Nobody else has navigated those waters. Is that just a faith? That is not a faith thing. There's an evidentiary basis for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There is no such supporting data for any other pretender to the throne. Every other pretender says, follow me, and people blindly do. Jesus says, follow me, but leaves us with a reason for so doing. If you're a follower of the Lord Jesus, you will not be disappointed. He said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Anyone could spout off at the mouth. Nobody can authenticate the words by the works the way Jesus did. Don't be afraid. <laughs> I say the same thing to me. Don't be fearful. We're in the boat. There's stormy waters on the Sea of Galilee. doesn't matter. If you're in the boat with Jesus, you're going to be fine. Remember when he said... Remember when he said to the winds, quiet down? Remember that? He does that today even for us too. Just make sure you're in the boat with the right one. <laughs> Lord Jesus, thank you for allowing us to be in the boat with you.
though the waters are oftentimes choppy and turbulent, we will get to the other side. For you are the captain of our souls. We believe it. And it has not been a blind leap from logic to faith. It's very logical to believe, to follow, because you have given us evidence of the fact that your words are supported by miraculous works unique to you. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for captivating our souls, just as you did, Peter. We fall down at your feet, not fearfully, but respectfully. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you, folks. See you next time.